0: let's open our bibles to uh, romans chapter 15 romans chapter 15 it's on page 893 in your pew bible it's a wonderful song it's an appropriate response to god's grace toward us in jesus christ thank you jesus jesus thank you and uh, i would say that while wow, that is a beautiful and appropriate response it is not by any means the only response uh, really the the uh, what the praise we uh, offer to God with our lips ought to be representative of a whole life that is dedicated to God, as Paul has expounded the Gospel in Romans one to eleven he begins in chapter twelve, uh, telling us that the only appropriate response uh, to god 's amazing grace toward us in Christ is to dedicate our soul selves our whole bodies to God. And as Paul is spelling out the practical implications of the gospel, he very soon gets into this theme of Christian love. And he, ca- he camps out on that theme of Christian love for a few chapters. He talks about expressing genuine love to fellow believers, uh, uh, to unbelievers, to governing authorities. He talks about how urgent this is because the Lord could return at any time. And now in chapters 14 and halfway through chapter 15, he concludes this whole section by telling us how to deal with an impediment to Christian love, a barrier to Christian unity. And that barrier are disagreements that believers can have over disputable matters. Uh, These disputable matters are what we would call the gray areas of the Christian life. They have to do with issues that are not explicitly spelled out in Scripture. That is to say, there is no clear command or prohibition or directive or principle that tells us exactly what we are to do in this given issue or in this particular situation. And therefore, there's going to be different uh, uh, views of those issues as disagreement, as uh, believers grapple with these issues according to God's Word. And so Paul tells us, how we're to handle these kinds of disagreements. Now, it's important to understand as we've reviewed this in Romans 14, and now we'll be in chapter 15, two things that I think are absolutely critical to keep in mind when we talk about these disputable matters in the Christian life. The first thing that Paul points out is that these are not, again, the black and white truths of Scripture. There is so much in scripture that is absolutely crystal clear for the person who has a heart and mind to understand it. Commands and prohibitions and principles that God has laid out before us. Those things that are explicitly addressed in scripture, all believers are to agree on and practice as a local church. The second thing that Paul points out in chapter 14 is that when it does come to the gray areas, the more disputable matters, the things that are not clearly addressed in Scripture, something is true of all believers on all sides of the issue, according to Romans 14, the the ones that Paul is talking about. And that is their sincere desire is to honor God. Their sincere desire is to honor God, no matter what side of the issue they're on whether they're considered weak believers or strong believers, their genuine desire is to do what pleases God. And I think that's very important to remember as we conclude this whole section today because we can only imagine how many problems in the Christian life, including interpersonal conflict, would be entirely eliminated if all of us were to obey the black and white truths of Scripture with a heart that truly desires to honor God in all things. I believe that probably 99% of the problems and conflicts in the Christian life would be utterly eliminated, and the final 1% would be resolved in the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit as we simply follow Jesus' example. And that's what Paul really wants us to know as he concludes this section in Romans 15, verses 1 to 13. Again, it's on page 893 in your pew Bible, and I invite you to follow along as I read this important text. Romans 15, verses 1 to 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name and again it is said rejoice O Gentiles with his people and again praise the Lord all you Gentiles let all the peoples extol him and again Isaiah says The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word in this hour, In these few moments that we have gathered together on this, the Lord's day, oh, how I pray that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to see and to understand and to embrace your truth as it comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ and in the passage laid out here in Romans 15. Lord, this time of year is filled with so many end-of-the-school-year activities Uh, graduation parties, uh, birthdays, company commitments, uh, wrapping up some people their quarterlies as far as uh, tax preparations and things like that. Uh, But Lord, there are so many things that could easily distract us from the vital truth that we need today. And so that's why we ask your Holy Spirit to give us a laser-like focus on your word today. I pray that by your grace we would block out any other distraction and fix our eyes only on Jesus Christ, our example, as he has presented us to hear here in Romans 15. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word this morning. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. As you can see, this passage ends on a positive note. May the God of peace fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That's a, that's a positive expression, is it not? I mean, who doesn't want God's joy? Who doesn't want God's peace? Who doesn't want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives? And yet as Paul makes it clear in the verses leading up to verse 13 in Romans 15 this prayer at the end of the passage must be accompanied by a diligent effort on our part to strive for unity among God's people to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding as as Paul laid out in chapter 14 verse 19 and in order for this to happen we must follow Jesus' example by pleasing our neighbor rather than ourselves. Doing what's best for them instead of putting our interests first. That is the key concept that is presented in this passage and it is best expressed as a command. Follow Jesus' example by pleasing your neighbor for God's glory. Let that sink in for just a moment, because that really is the thrust, the transformative truth of this text today. Follow Jesus' example by pleasing your neighbor for God's glory. Paul presses this point by laying out the precept in verses 1 and 2, and then pointing to Christ as our example or as our pattern in verses 3 and 4. Then he interjects a prayer in verses 5 and 6. And and in that prayer and what follows, we see God's purpose in unifying us in Christ. And then he ends with a final prayer in verse 13. I'm going to look at each of these just briefly this morning. First of all, the precept in verses 1 and 2. Look up in the dictionary and you'll see that a precept is a command or a direction that is given as a rule of action or conduct. In other words, this is how you are to go about life. This is what I want you to do. I want this to be your way of living. That is the precept that Paul is uh, setting out for us in verse 1. Look at what he says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, even though this command, this precept, this rule for living ought to apply and does apply to all Christians, Paul is specifically addressing a particular group. Who is it? The strong. Who are the strong here? Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And and Paul is clearly lumping himself in with this group, those who are considered strong. Well, if you have been with us the past few weeks, you understand that there was this disputable matter that was separating believers in the church at Rome, primarily the Gentile believers from the Jewish believers. The strong believers were those who uh, were confident of their freedom in Christ, and they were the meat eaters. Whereas Some of the Jews who had come back from a certain religious and cultural background, while they had trusted Christ as their Savior, were still tied to some of the the regulations and rituals of the Old Covenant. Uh, While they believed that Christ fulfilled the Old Covenant, that he kept the law perfectly, they were so used to following certain rules and regulations that were part of the Law of Moses that they just had a hard time freeing their conscience from those peculiarities, such as observing certain religious days, uh, uh, following a certain religious diet. And this excluded meat that had been defiled, and that was defiled ceremonially in a religious sense. Uh, one would be offering it to uh, uh, meat that had been offered to idols. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians. So without getting into the specifics of all that, the point was is that they were vegetarians because they wanted to be absolutely sure that they weren't eating meat that was ceremonially undefiled. Whereas the strong believers would say, hey, we're completely free in Christ. Christ has fully fulfilled the law. Those Old Testament regulations and ritual and observance of certain days and diets don't matter anymore. It's all about Christ. Therefore, we have freedom to eat and drink whatever we want to the glory of God. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So theologically, Paul is siding himself with the strong believers, the meat eaters. Paul agrees with, G, what, what, with what Jesus said in Mark 7, that it's not what the food that goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles you. And, and so food is morally neutral. And yet there were other believers those who were weaker in faith that just weren't comfortable uh, getting away from their observance of those days and diets. So Paul says, you who are strong in the faith, those of you who understand your full freedom in Christ, you have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. When we think about that word, bearing, with the failings of the weak, doesn't that suggest a little more than mere toleration of just putting up with people? It suggests that we are to come alongside and help them. Um, Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The Bible makes it clear that the law of Christ is the law of love. And 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter says, love what? It bears all things. We understand this in a um, practical way, in a physical way. If I see my wife carrying something that's heavy, my instinct is to go help relieve her of that burden. Peter talks about this in his first epistle. He says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life. And, And he's referring just in general to that women are generally physically weaker than men, and we're to be understanding of that, and we're to come alongside and help them with those physical weaknesses. And likewise, just as husbands are to be considerate of their wives who are weaker than them physically, according to verse 1 of chapter 15, Paul says, we who are strong in faith ought to shoulder the burdens of the doubts and qualms of others and not just to go along our own sweet way. That's how J.B. Phillips translates verse 1. I think it's good. Listen to that again. We who have strong faith ought to shoulder the burden of the doubts and the qualms of others and not just to go our own sweet way. John Calvin wrote, The stronger anyone is in Christ, the more bound he is to bear with the weak. It's a good point. He's absolutely right. The stronger anyone is in Christ, the more bound he is to bear with the weak. That is, instead of living to please ourselves, we are to please our neighbor for his good. Just yesterday, as part of my daily Bible reading, I I follow a certain schedule to read the Bible through in a year, and I happened to be in Isaiah 57, and came across this verse where the Lord says, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every uh, obstruction out of the way of my people. Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction out of the way of my people. And that's what Paul's been talking about. He's talking about removing stumbling blocks, uh, hindrances that would trip up people's faith in Christ. We want to clear the way to move the path forward to Christian maturity and to Christian unity. And those who are strong in faith have an obligation to lead the way. That's the point that Paul is making. He is saying, be a help, not a hindrance. Notice he says in Romans 15, 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That is to say, it is every believer's responsibility to do this. But there is an especially an obligation on the part of the strong. And thankfully, we have Christ as our example. So Paul moves from the precept in verses 1 and 2, to the pattern in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3. After telling us in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, he says in verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul's quoting a scripture verse from the Old Testament here, specifically Psalm 69. Now, what's interesting about Psalm 69 is that New Testament writers frequently use this psalm to explain and interpret the sufferings of Christ, a suffering that was foretold in the Old Testament. Now, in the original context of Psalm 69, it's David writing. David is writing out of his own experience as a righteous sufferer who has been forsaken by his friends and is being attacked by his enemies. But the New Testament writers are saying this ultimately points to Christ, that he is the ultimate righteous sufferer who is without warrant attacked by his enemies. He's even forsaken by those who are closest to him. And yet what did Jesus do? He suffered for the good of those he came to save to the glory of God. We just read about that moments ago as Larry and Marilyn read from Philippians chapter 2. Right? He talks about, man, if there's there's any comfort of love, there's any unity in the Spirit, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let this mindset, this attitude be in you that was also in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to. But what did he do? He was willing to make himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, becoming a man. A servant in the form of man who was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus became the ultimate sufferer to do us the ultimate good. And Paul's point here in quoting that Christ is our example in the same way strong believers should follow Jesus example by not using their freedom to serve themselves but to serve others. Mark 10:45 Jesus said for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well Paul in pointing to Christ as our example, as the ultimate one who, who suffered for the good of others to the glory of God, follows up this quotation from Psalm 69 with a statement about the Old Testament as a whole in verse 4. Look at Romans fifteen four. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now, this is the only place in Paul's letters where he says it's through the encouragement of the Scriptures that believers have hope. Encouragement and hope are brought together in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. Look at this. May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and by His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts so here's the thing what paul is affirming in romans 15 4 is that one of the primary ways that god encourage his people is through the scriptures if you're discouraged you're filled with anxiety you're worried you're depressed what means does god use to encourage you Well, one of the primary means is through the Scriptures. How often do we turn to other resources, and there are many of them, to try to lift our spirits instead of turning to the Lord, to the God who has given us His Word for our encouragement. God provides the comfort and encouragement we need to continue living in a way that honors God. You see, when you're striving for unity, you feel like people are taking advantage of you, that you're looking out for their best interest, but they're not looking out for your best interest. And you're getting discouraged and you're getting frustrated and you're wondering, is this really worth it? Maybe I should just look out for me, read God's word. Look to Christ as your example. If anyone had any reason to give up from a human standpoint, it would have been Jesus Christ. He was absolutely perfect, and yet he was treated as the ultimate criminal. Died a shameful death, and yet he said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. And brothers and sisters, Christ went through that for us undeserving sinner so that we could be united by faith in him and live to the glory of God. So when you're giving out and giving out and giving out to others and you feel like you're getting nothing in return and you're wondering if it's really worth it, look to Jesus. Read the scriptures. He is our ultimate example. God's word provides the comfort and encouragement, we need to continue living in a way that honors God. That's Christian endurance. Here's a formula for you. Encouragement plus endurance equals hope. That's what verse four tells us. Encouragement plus endurance equals hope. If you get encouragement from the scriptures, but you don't do anything with what you're reading, you don't apply it to your life, that encouragement isn't going to matter a hill of beans to you or anybody else. But if you're trying to do the right thing and just slug it out, but you're not drawing encouragement from the scriptures, you're going to give up. You're going to say it's not worth it. And you're not going to live a life that continues to honor God perseveringly. We need encouragement. We need endurance. And those things put together produces hope. Hope is the confident expectation that God's word is true and therefore God will make good on all his promises. In this context, it means that God will reward those who suffer for the good of others to the glory of God. That's the significance of that truth in this context. God will reward those who suffer for the good of others sacrificing their own freedom, their own interest for the good of others, to the glory of God. Uh, Paul talked about this at length in Romans chapter 8, where we talked about endurance and hope and the wonderful glory we will share with Christ. In Romans 8, Paul says, believers are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And if we understand this idea of encouragement, endurance, and hope in the context of Christian love and liberty, uh, of bearing with one another's failings and weaknesses, the point is this, that by living in a unified way now, we're pursuing peace now, we're pursuing mutual upbuilding now, we will get a better foretaste of the perfect unity that we will enjoy for all eternity. And the more we persevere through that and and we're building peaceful relationships with other believers, we're working through conflict in a way that honors God with true Christian love, we'll not only be getting a foretaste of the glory that is to come, but we'll actually be all the more confident that God's word is true. Uh, Because we can already see progress in our Christian life and relationships and look like, look, that is the... Uh, one day we will be enjoy perfect unity, but praise God, we are right now enjoying progressive unity. Uh, we're continuing on that mark that one day we will reach. By living in that, that way now, we get a foretaste of the perfect unity that we will enjoy forever. Samuel Stone wrote about this in his famous hymn, The Church is One Foundation. One of the stanzas goes, Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. That last line is so important because brothers and sisters, if we are ever going to be unified the way God wants us to be, we need his grace. We cannot do it without God's help. And that's why Paul utters a prayer in the next two verses. A prayer that conveys the purpose for living to please our neighbor instead of ourselves. So notice the transgression. He started off with a precept that we're to live to please our neighbor, not ourselves. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Then he moves to Christ as our pattern in verses three and four. And now he's following this up with a prayer that reveals God's purpose in verses 5 and 6. Romans 15, 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, our pattern, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the purpose? Why is God bringing us together? So that with One voice, collectively, we may praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now on any given Sunday, we have at least a couple of hundred voices gathered here. And as everyone participates, we have a hundred voices singing praise to our great God and Savior. And that's a beautiful thing to listen to. I've attended the Together for the Gospel conference, where there has been as many as 12,000 believers gathered together in a in an arena a singing with all their hearts to the lord and that is a that is a thrilling spine tingling experience and some of you have been in even outside of the christian context you have been perhaps in a stadium perhaps even in buffalo cheering for the bills where where crazy fans are Cheering, they're just going nuts, cheering their team on to victory, celebrating a touchdown or what have you. They, they roar, they get up on their feet, they applaud, they cheer. Tens of thousands of people cheering like crazy. And I imagine, can you imagine what heaven will be like when billions of people will sing and shout their praise to God, not passively, not mumbling it, but imagine every single individually redeemed believer, billions of them gathered around God's throne, praising God with every fiber of their being being joined together in one voice. Can we even begin to imagine what that will be like. Someone even wrote a song about that. I can only imagine. That's going to be an awesome day. Something that's hard to even begin to envision. But that's the picture that God paints for us in Scripture, especially as we get to the book of Revelation, which we'll look at in a moment. But the point is that God wants us as His children today to live this day, right now, In light of that eternal day, this is supposed to be a preview of the great celebration to come. Therefore, Paul says in verse 7: welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Once again, we see Christ as our pattern. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. How arrogant it is of us to refuse anyone whom God has received. If God has received unworthy sinners like us through repentance and faith in Christ Jesus, ought we not to receive one another? One person agrees. Heard one amen. To reinforce the call to Christian unity, Paul goes on to emphasize in verses 8 to 12 that the purpose for which Christ came was to confirm God's promise to us, and to combine our praises to God. First of all, Christ came to confirm the promises of God. That's what Paul says in verse 8, which reads this way in the New Living Translation. Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he's made to their ancestors. Paul expounded on this point at length in chapters 9 to 11. We spent Weeks and weeks on those chapters, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it here. But this is simply to remind us that way back in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, chapter 12, God calls Abraham, saying he's going to make a great nation out of him. And God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, All the peoples, all the ethnic groups on the face of the earth will be blessed through you. And even though the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, failed to keep their promises to God, God never failed to keep his promises to them. In Acts chapter 3, when the apostle Peter is preaching to a crowd of Jews gathered in the temple courtyard in Jerusalem, he quotes this promise from God to Abraham in Genesis 12, saying, To the Jews, you are included in the covenant God made to your, or God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, Through your offspring all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you, people of Israel, to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. You go back to the Gospel of Mark very first chapter verses 14 and 15 it says at the very start of his ministry what did jesus do it says jesus came into galilee proclaiming the gospel of god the good news of god saying the time is fulfilled the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe the gospel that is turn from your sinful ways and believe the good news that god has proclaimed concerning his son And Jesus pointed to himself as the fulfillment of everything that God had promised. The long-awaited Messiah had finally come. King Jesus was now here telling his fellow Jews that to enter into God's kingdom, they had to turn their backs on their sins, and they needed to believe the good news from God concerning his son. From that point forward, throughout his public ministry, Jesus proved by his miracles by his teaching remember they said he had taught like no one they had ever heard his compassion for others his perfect obedience to god that god was truly his father that he was the unique son of god and the savior of the world john the baptist the forerunner to the messiah pointed to jesus and said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world Christ came to confirm the promises of God, but that's not all. He also came to combine our praise to God. The praise of both Jews and Gentiles. The gospel came to the Jews first, but it was not for the Jews only. It was for all the peoples of the earth. Paul states this as the second purpose for which Christ came in the second half of verse 9, saying, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Paul then goes on to cite four different texts from the Old Testament to prove that the inclusion of the Gentiles as part of God's kingdom was His plan all along. Look again quickly at the second half of verse 9 through verse 12. Paul says, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles. I'm sorry. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse, Jesse was the father of David, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles hope. These four quotations, if you want to note, are taken from, and this is in order, Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, which served as our call to worship today, and Isaiah 11. Now, a lot could be said about these verses in the original context and relating it here, but there's only two things I want to point out. First of all, in quoting these verses, Paul quotes from each of the three major divisions of the Old Testament. The Law, also known as the Torah, the Prophets, and the Writings. Paul quoted from each of the three major sections of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, to prove that the Old Testament as a whole had envisioned Gentiles belonging to the kingdom of God along with the Jews. That was God's plan from the very start. And the second thing that I believe is worth pointing out for our time here this morning, is that final quotation from Isaiah 11.10. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. That prophecy on which Paul ends his quotation of Old Testament scriptures is especially significant. Again, I want to read to you John Calvin's commentary on this is so good. He says, This prophecy is the most illustrious of them all. For in that passage, the prophet, when things were almost past hope, comforted the small remnant of the faithful even by this, that there would arise a shoot from the dry and dying trunk of David's family, and that a branch would flourish from this despised root, which would restore to God's people their pristine glory, it is clear from the account they're given that this shoot was Christ, the Redeemer of the world. So in the prophecy of Isaiah, all the judgment of God is is coming upon Israel for their sins against God. Their enemies are coming in. They're being taken off to captivity. And there's like nothing left but like a little stump from the house of David. God says, out of that stump there's going to come the Redeemer of the world. And that Redeemer is Christ. And who will be saved? Not just Jews, but the Gentiles, all the peoples of the world. Praise God that Christ has come. That His kingdom continues to grow throughout the world. Every day all over the world, people are turning to Christ for salvation. They're entering God's kingdom. The Bible says there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And yet there are still more than 3,000 unreached language groups in the world. By that I mean these are people who have zero access to the gospel in their language and not a single gospel preaching church in their midst. 3,000 unreached language groups, no access to the gospel, no viable churches. And that means that for us to complete the great commission that Christ has given to us to make disciples of all nations of every ethnic, every ethnicity, every socio-linguistic group, we must get the gospel to those remaining peoples. And that's why church planting among those unreached peoples ought to be the church's first priority. We're going to see next week in the second half of Romans 15 that this was Paul's priority. It was the priority of the first century church and it needs to be our priority today. God wants the unreached peoples of the world, those who have not yet heard the good news, that the God who created them came to this earth to save them. So that they too. Could join their praise with ours and worship God and enjoy Him forever. This is precisely what the Apostle John envisioned in Revelation 19 when he wrote, Listen to this. God gives him a vision of heaven And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we will join that deafening chorus of praise to God. But the unity starts now. Can you see that the purpose of our salvation and our unity in Christ is so that all peoples might join their hearts and voices in fervent worship of God forever and ever. So that little interpersonal conflict you're experiencing, that cold shoulder that you're giving to someone as they walk into The church building, the falling out of that relationship, the gossip, the slander, whenever that occurs, you're cutting out our legs from under us. One commentator wrote, disunity among Christians not only damages their own walk with God and our reputation with outsiders, it also damages our ability to give God the glory he deserves. And that's why Paul, after explaining God's purpose to glorify himself through our unity in Christ, concludes with a prayer. Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Again I ask, who doesn't want joy? (laughs) Who doesn't want peace in their heart, in their relationships with others? Who doesn't want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your daily life and relationships? Brothers and sisters, we want this, and and Paul is praying for all of us to. Notice he says that, "...may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope." He's talking to all of God's people. He wants them to experience all of God's joy and peace in believing. And so this suggests, of course, that we must pray for it. We must pray for it. Again, some of us are guilty of trying to do the right things, but we're trying to do in our own strength rather than God's. I'm not going to get this quote exactly, but My wife shared with me yesterday uh, a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I had heard before, but I had forgotten. Someone asked Spurgeon, which is more important, reading your Bible or praying? And Spurgeon said, well, let me ask you what's more important, breathing out or in? Right? You need both in order to live. And in the same way, yes, we need to pray for God to do a work in our lives and relationship. We need to pray for His joy, pray for His peace, pray for His power. But that prayer means nothing if our heart motives and if our actions are not united with our plea to God. So even as we pray for peace and joy and unity and power, we must, as Paul said in the previous chapter, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding and we can pray in confidence knowing that this prayer is perfectly in line with god's purpose to glorify himself through the unity of his people brothers and sisters we can be absolutely sure that god will do his part the question is will you and i do ours Let's pray. Father, once again you have given us a convicting yet encouraging passage that motivates us that challenges us to do better than we're doing. But we thankful are so thankful God that we do not have to rely on our own resources, but you have given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the exceedingly great and precious promises that come to us through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, by faith to claim those promises, to pray in light of those promises, and to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding as we live according to those promises, following the pattern, the example, the perfect model of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.